Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors, a strategic communications company. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. My guest this week is John Germ. In Chattanooga, the name John Germ shows up on nearly every board and organization working to improve the city. Professionally, John was the CEO and board chair of the consulting engineer firm Campbell Associates. He's been a member of Chattanooga Rotary since 1976 and was chosen in 2016 to serve as president of Rotary International. John, welcome to my morning cup. Before we dive into why you believe serving others is so important, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? Well, right now I got some glass of water because I quit drinking coffee a few months ago, but thank you very much for this uh, opportunity to be with you today and to have a little chat as we just relax and uh, start a new day. You hit it right on the head there, John. It's just a nice conversation. I've got such admiration for you. I don't know if there's really anyone I could look at over my last 23 years in town who's been involved in basically everything. And I mentioned that you served as Rotary International President in 2016, but you take seriously service above self. Well, I do because, uh, you know, all of us have got certain talents. All of us uh, want Chattanooga or your hometown to be a better place than it is. Mm -hmm. We want our children to have a better education. We want the community to grow. How can it do that if we don't help? So I just believe we owe something back. What I like about what you do, it's not just giving something back to the things that benefit John Germ. Yeah, well, you know, if you go after it for selfish reasons, it won't work. People will see through you in about two seconds. They'll see, are you genuine? Are you doing this to further your business? Or are you doing this to make the town better? And if the town is better, your business is going to grow. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the things that I've been involved in have uh, have nothing to do with my business. Starting of Blood Assurance or the J.C. Towers, back when uh, several people said that you'll never be able to build this building. Well, you don't tell young people <laughs> you can't. That's all you uh, need to hear is you can't. That, you can't. Say, I can't. And I take the back to the last word of the word America says, I can. Mm-hmm. So we started when we built this because the retired teachers needed a place to where they could afford to live because we all know teachers don't make the greatest money in the world. So there we had an opportunity to build a building, had to raise some money, and the two buildings built the first one, then built a second one, all because of the contacts with the guy that run the Chattanooga Housing Authority at the time showed us how to get into the federal government, but it was because the teachers that were retiring couldn't afford the regular condos that were being built. They were priced out. They were priced out. Let's talk about how you got there, though. I know you were born and raised in Chattanooga, and you went to Kirkman High School. How important was Kirkman to you in your career? Well, it goes back to my family. My father had an eighth-grade education. He came in, uh, he was born in Milwaukee, Minnesota. His family took him back over to Austria, and then he stowed away on the ship to get back over here. How old was he? Uh, he was uh, 15 to 18, somewhere in that age. Could you age. imagine stowing away on a ship when you're 15? 
if your parents, one of your parents dies, and my grandfather married a woman that had a child older than my father, in the old country, the oldest boy, oldest son inherited the farm. Well, daddy saw he couldn't ever get anything over there, so he came back to America. My mother had a 12th, uh, she graduated from high school. She was an avid reader. She was born and raised in Cleveland. She's part Indian, and uh, my father was full German. And he told me, he said, if you can get a good education, and if you can learn a trade, you can make a living, and you can support a family. And that's your number one responsibility is to support the family. Mm -hmm. So I went to Avondale. I was born and raised Avondale community. Went to Avondale Elementary School, went to Hardy Middle School, then went to Kirkman because I could get a trade. Mm -hmm. There was never any thought in my mind about going to college. Never. And I took drafting. We took drafting courses for three hours a day. And the period thing was that if you graduated, they would get you a job between your junior year and senior year, or they'd try to get you part-time jobs. So I took the drafting class. A guy named Chuck Bender uh, was the instructor. I got a job with a company called, uh, I think it was Fred Salmon Company. They did work for combustion engineering. And the old uh, American National Bank, or Hampton National Bank Villas down on the corner of Main and Market Street. And so I really liked that. Then I got a job with the state highway department. Highway 153 wasn't there at the time. And they were surveying to, for that road. And when they got through surveying it, they would bring it in. And I'd sit there and plot it and draw it out. It took many years to build that road. but <laughs> So you had a hand in building 153. Drawing it. Well, you got to draw it before you could build it. That's you? right. <laughs> so long time ago, and uh, worked in Jasper some for the interstate when it was going through there back in the, this was all in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was before y'all guys were born. So, I mean, it's, a, I'm pretty close. You're close. <laughs> so my father kept saying, you go to education, but he worked Tennessee paper mills. They couldn't afford to send me to college. So I used my money from the summertime and uh, my mother was insisting I go to college. And so to go to UT. And when I got to UT, they said, uh, well, you've got to take some remedial math because the highest math I had had was plain geometry. And they wanted calculus and, mm-hmm. and everything. And I will forget they went to my English class. And they said, you need to write a essay about your summer activities. And so I held up my hand. I said, what's an essay? <laughs> Next day, I go back to class, and here's the sentence up on the board and then, hey, I said, I wrote that. Well, this is what the teacher said. Now, this is what you don't do. Oh, wow. But now, she never said who did it. Yeah, but you knew. I knew. But it was too long. It wasn't punctuated right. Well, at Kirkman, that school was built and designed for learning of trade to get a job, which is what my father and family said was important. And I believed them. I had worked at grocery stores uh we had a small garden. I would sell turnip greens and on a bicycle, go to the community, try to sell turnip greens, and was having difficulty uh, selling them. And I kept saying, well, what's, what's happening here? Why can't I sell these turnip greens? So then I came up with the idea, if I put a piece of fat back in there and give them the fat back and sell it as a package, I could do it. So that's how I did it. 
I sold grit newspapers. People don't even know what grit newspaper was anymore, but it was a paper that uh, you go door to door and you sell it. So whatever it took to raise some money, I did. But then when I got into college, while I had to take some remedial math and remedial English, I had enough drafting experience to where I could take one year of drafting by taking a proficiency exam. Knock that out. So knock that out. But then that let me have some time to work in a machine shop. I just worked my way through the national shirt shop, selling shirts and stuff. But it was determination that I was going to get a degree. I know your degrees in engineering and you did drafting, but it sounds like at heart you're a salesman. Anyone that can take a turnip greens and package them with fatback <laughs> as a consumer product good when no one else is thinking of that, that's a great salesperson. I think all of us are salesmen. Yeah, I agree with you. So when you got out of UT, you joined the Air Force? Actually, I joined the Air Force while I was in UT because this was in the 56, 58 area. And guess what was going on about that time? Uh, that was right before uh, the Bay of Pigs, wasn't it? Yes. And you also had a mandatory draft back then, if you'll recall, too. And so I said, you know, I got two choices. I could wait till I graduate and see what happens, or I can join ROTC and I can get $47 a quarter or whatever they were paying back then. That'll help me get pay my expenses. And I can go in as an officer. I thought, well, it makes more sense for me to go as an officer. So <laughs> I got in the Air Force. I signed up for the Air Force ROTC and uh, graduated and went in as a uh, second lieutenant. I went to uh, navigator training out at uh, James Conley Air Force Base in Texas. and then went to uh, survival training at Stead and in Tampa. and then went to Dover, Delaware. And so... We had a few instances at Dover where one plane crashed and 10 people died right there flying around what we call flying around the flagpole because you had to get at least four hours of flight time a month in order to get flight pay. Mm -hmm. And then I had an interesting experience of going to the Bay of Pigs, uh, and we would get up every morning, and uh, we were stationed down at operating out of McDill Air Force, but, and we would fly partway down, and then if the pilot didn't have a – he had to get a code, and I had to get a code as a navigator, or we had to turn back. And we never did go all the way to Cuba. But we had the 101 Airborne Division with equipment and everything on our plane. So it was an interesting experience. But yeah, I also had – we carried Gemini 4. I was going to ask you about that. You've got a hand in the NASA program. Yeah. Vietnam was coming around. So we had carried some supplies over to Vietnam. Well, we were on our way over, and plane coming back and said, did y'all hear what happened in Dover? And that's when the squadron people got killed. And uh, said, no. So they grounded us when we were in Hawaii. I said, well, that's not too bad. We're going to be in Hawaii. Well, at uh, that age, uh, we tended to want to go party that night. Right. And uh, then we got a call early in the morning said, well, you've got uh, – cleared for a one-time mission or clearing for a one-time mission. You can go from point A to point B, but you can't go any further unless they give you clearance to go somewhere else. So we got to Travis air force base in uh, California. The next day they said, you're cleared to St. Louis. So we got up, got our airplane flew to St. Louis and uh, they loaded Gemini four uh, onto our airplane. We were flying C-124 big globe master. Uh, but 
picked up the Gemini 4, took it to Canaveral. And then they cleared us to Dover. And so when we got to Dover, I'd already got, I was the first lieutenant and working on being captain. And I was doing scheduling for navigators at that time. If you've been gone that long, they normally give you a lot of days off. So we took the time off, went in to check the scheduling and stuff. And they said, well, we found out what happened to the airplane. We checked your plane and it had the same problem. I said, "Uh, what was the problem? And the problem was that a mechanic had put a half inch steel bolt. Those wings are bolted together and they do flop when they're there. He put a half inch steel bolt where it's supposed to be a five eighths inch aluminum bolt. And it just gradually weakened the strut to where it just cracked. And it's nine inches and we had a six inch crack in our wing spar. So then we were doing practice uh, drops right off of Savannah and we'd take 55 gallon drums of water and you'd plot your course and then decide when to drop them. So it's, uh, you drop the equipment. But it's, yeah. it's better than dropping people till you get pretty good at it. So we went back out over the ocean and made a turn to go back and do another drop. And all of a sudden, the plane started shaking and everything. We ended up getting back to base. Fortunately, we were at Dover. We may have never made it. We got in there, and they had. Uh, they said, you've actually hit the water. Because when they did the turn, we lost the propeller, threw the propeller underneath the plane instead of through it, and then a heater pod went out. So we were totally out of balance. The engineer had to put his foot on the panel to steady the plane enough so he could read the gauges. And so I told you that it put each one of us in a separate car, took us to the hospital. They took blood tests. They took all kinds of tests to be sure we hadn't had alcohol or any of that kind of stuff. And I told Judy, I said, you know, I didn't get into this to do this. And I said, that's twice. Yeah. I think I got to get out. And then about the same time, they were taking and moving people to Seattle, Spokane, but leaving the family back home. And they had to sell the house and take care of the kids and all this. And I said, I've done my part. You did your service and had... I got out. You had two pretty clear signs that said enough is enough. Yeah, and in between that, when I decided I was going to get out, we came back home for Christmas, and I started looking around, and uh, I looked at uh, DuPont and Combustion, uh, AEDC, and uh, some of those uh, larger companies, and then I talked to two independent consulting firms, then went back and I said, you know, when you're in the military, you're a number. A zero three one six four two. I could you still you, remember it. Yeah. You're a number. So uh I said, I, I think I wanna work for a smaller company. I wanna work for a company where I've got some potential uh, to move forward because uh, but this time we had two kids. And so I said, you know, I've got to do something else. Talked to a guy named George Campbell, because it was Campbell and Jones. This was in 1964. And I talked to a guy named Fred Keith. He was the Chattanooga operator of a consulting firm that was headquartered in Birmingham, Alabama. I said, you know, that seems like a pretty good place to, for me to have some opportunities and to, to move forward. And so George Campbell called me. And when I was in Dover, he called Collette. I said, yeah, I'll take the call. So he said, I have checked with your professors. And I checked your records, and I checked with Salman that I'd worked for while I was in the high school. And so he said, uh, but you've been out. 
you know, four years. I don't know how much of this knowledge you've retained. Mm -hmm. And he said, we're in the heating and cooling business, and I need you to calculate a heating and cooling project for me, a sample project. And I said, well, I'll be glad to do that, but I don't have it in my books or any of that kind of stuff. He said, well, I'll send you everything you need. So he did. And so I worked the problem. I sent it back to him. Then he called, but he called on his dime. <laughs> and he said, uh, when are you going to be back in town? We'd like to talk to you. So I went, met with he and a guy named Art Jones. They later split up. It became Campbell and Associates, George S. Campbell Associates, then Campbell Associates. Uh, so we sat down and talked, and the salary he was going to offer me was less than what I was making in the Air Force. But, I, again, it was because potential. Mm -hmm. And so I told him, I said, okay, I'll take your job, but I'll tell you something right now. Within 10 years, I'll either own part of this company or I'll be your biggest competitor. And he said, that's fine. And so I took the job, started in September 65, uh, bought the company in 72, 73, somewhere in that area. Made your time frame. I bought stock in 68, three years. And George said, you know, if you really want to be successful in this town, you need to get involved civically. The best organization for you to be involved in is the JCs. We don't even have JCs in Chattanooga anymore. Explain for folks who may not remember the JCs. It was the Junior Chamber of Commerce, and it was for people 21 to 36. It was a young man's organization. It was a learning ground, and they had programs that taught uh, speak up, how you do speeches, how you do presentations, and that type of stuff. So it was a good thing, and it was a hands-on project to do work, just like I was talking a while ago about the J.C. Towers. That became a project where we could do something. And when I was president of the J.C.'s, uh, you ran that for office just like you do at a public office. You're automatically on the board of the Chamber of Commerce. You were automatically on the board of the Convention of Visitors Bureau. You were on Orange Groves. And several boards like that that you got involved in, and it was to help get you knowledge about the community. It was leadership training to a great degree. Is that where your love of uh, serving in the community comes from? or Because you're involved with about everything. Well, not anymore. but <laughs> Well, throughout the years. But you saw the, the value in it wasn't for you so much as it was the community. Well, I will have to say, though, that one of the first projects I got involved with was uh, the J.C. Towers. And I guess I really got involved because... I knew that that was going to involve engineering work and that I could contribute. But that's an ancillary benefit. Right. But that's what it was about. And uh, blood assurance. The medical society approached the JCs about uh, doing a study because they didn't have enough blood in Chattanooga. Red Cross was uh, handling all the blood supply. Well, they would draw, but they never kept any of the blood here. Mm -hmm. So all the hospitals were always having to call for blood. Well, then they got to get out of Atlanta or Nashville or wherever else they were getting it from. And so we did the study and found out that the medical society paid us $5,000 to do this study. Uh, David McCauley and uh, Dr. Stone said that if they did the study, it wouldn't have credibility. If the hospitals did the study, it didn't have credibility. That invested in Plus the JCs had a good enough reputation that if they did it, it was independent. So we did a lot of work and then came back and decided, yes, that's something that 
this town needed was an all-volunteer blood bank. So Dan Johnson, who's a very good friend of mine, and I said, we got to get this done. Uh, We started by our wives volunteering their time, and we would get donors and use the old punch, go Chetnick Estate, punch them on cards, take them down to the free press who had an old 1130 computer system, run the cards. That's how we built the database. Then the, Judy said, I got to raise kids. So, so <laughs> she was out. <laughs> so she went out and let us stay there for a long time. And actually she was, became an employee there, but Grady Lane. Yeah. I remember Grady. Uh, he was one of our first employees. And in 2009, I sold the company to the employees with the understanding that, uh, I'd serve as a consultant for five years. Uh, they'd pay me out at 10 years at a predetermined interest rate as 1% over New York prime, which is a pretty good deal for them. But that kept them from having to borrow money and put themselves in finances. Yeah. Cause when I bought the company from George, I mortgaged my house and everything else in order to get the money to buy that. And I said, well, there's no reason doing that. I just didn't have long-term income. So that's kind of owner financing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, well, and the stipulation was that if they ever missed two payments, I got the company back. Yeah. So they had a they had motivation motivation <laughs> yeah. to to do that. Yeah. Uh, my motivation was paying off my mortgage at the house that I'd already prearranged. I want to talk a little bit about um, your involvement with Rotary and the other organizations because I think your message of service above self, Rotary's message, and the way you've done that in this community is an example that. Frankly, we don't have enough of today, and Chattanooga needs going forward. Well, as I said, George said I needed to get involved civically, and I joined the JCs. But George also said, I'll pay half of your dues, but you've got to pay the other half. If I pay all of your dues, you're doing it because I want you to do it. If I only pay half your dues, it's a partnership. You have motivation. And you'll do it because you want to do it. So then after... Uh, JC is like I said, it was 21 to 36. He said, I want you to stay out of civic life now. By that time I'd been president of Chattanooga JCs, president of Tennessee JCs, and had traveled before interstates all over the state of Tennessee. And you were named Tennessee young man of the year also in 1970. Yes, that's about right. Yes. He said, I'll get you into rotary, but I want you to stay out of civic involvement for a year to be sure that's where you want to go. So I joined Rotary in 1976, and uh, quite honestly, I didn't do a thing besides go to luncheons. I was still involved in a lot of things civic-wise, the United Way and Chamber of Commerce and so forth, but I didn't do much in Rotary because Chattanooga Rotary depends on you having had civic involvement versus you using that as a building ground. So John Stoffel, who was our president and was an ex-JC, uh, said, John, I want you to be the secretary. I said, what's my job as a secretary? And he said, well, according to the Rotary rules, even though we have Thelma Hip at that time, who was a paid administrative assistant, we have to have a Rotarian as a secretary. I said, well, okay. I took notes. Thelma took notes and all that kind of stuff. That's what I did. But then it came up about a district conference. I said, what's a district conference? And they said, district conference is where all the clubs in our area get together, normally held in Gatlinburg or somewhere, and you have a meeting. 
well, I got up there and I saw all these projects people were involved in. And I said, you know, why isn't Chattanooga doing something like that? Well, we do it because we make contributions to a projects committee. And the projects committee decides what uh, some projects to get involved in, like cleanup projects or Habitat for Humanity and, and this type of stuff. So that's how I got involved through the Rotary. A guy named Ray Nation came to me and said, uh, you need to move on up in Rotary. I said, I got no interest in it. I like my local stuff. About what year was this, 77, 78? Yeah, somewhere in that area. Because you moved up pretty high. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, it was after, no, this was in the 80s, 83 maybe. And uh, one of the guys said, uh, Rotary's getting really involved with polio. Would you mind, since you've got experience statewide through the JCs, would you mind trying to help us raise some money within the Chattanooga, Cleveland, South Pittsburgh, Dayton uh, area? I said, no, that's fine. I already did a little work in Rotary with them. So I started raising funds for that. Rotary had an international, had a, a goal of $120 million. And uh, we raised $247 million. That's pretty good. Pretty fair. <laughs> well, before that, Rhodey had spent $760,000 for a pilot program in the Philippines to provide vaccine and to vaccinate 6 million children in the Philippines. That project was successful. That was in 1979. In 82, they declared polio free of the wild polio virus in the Philippines and went to the World Health Assembly, and they wouldn't even let Rhodey in the door to talk to him because they said that you're a non-governmental organization. You don't experience fundraisers. You've changed leadership every year, except all those excuses. And everything. Mm-hmm. That's when Rotary took on to raise its, uh, this $120 million because it took about 60 cents to a dollar to provide vaccine uh, at that time. They said there were about 100 million children under the age five and under, you know, $60 million for that. And then you got some, contingencies and all this kind of stuff. Fundraising people said we'd never make it. You've never had any experience in fundraising. You're always going to get people that promise you that it's not going to end up doing it. You're not going to be successful. Well, we were. Went back to the World Health Organization. They said, oh, there's some people that do know how to raise money. You got $247 million. This is possible to eradicate the world with polio. It's just going to take time to do it and money. So, Rotary, WHO, and the Center for Disease Control formed a group called the Global Polio Eradication Alliance. We raised money several times between there. We kept running down the money. And so we kept raising money. Then in 2007, the Gates Foundation said that they would give us $100 million to the Rotary Foundation to help eradication of polio. And it was an unusual gift in the fact that what they said was in November of 2007, agreement was we had to spend that money by December the 31st of 2008. That's a short time period. Short time, but the need was there, the demands were there, and we'd already been doing this since 85 when we started this Global Polio Eradication Initiative in 85. We knew what the cost was and what all was involved. And this is Bill Gates of Microsoft from the Gates Foundation. Oh, yeah. Bill Melinda Gates Foundation. But Bill Gates Sr. was a, actually a Rotarian. 
And he heard us in Utah at an international convention talking about what we were doing with polio and got really excited Then talked to Bill, his son. That's a nice advocate to have. Nice advocate <laughs> to have, you know. So they said that $100 million, spend it by December 31st of 2008. Then they wanted us to raise $100 million by June 30th of 2010. The interesting thing is, he didn't ask for the money back. He didn't say if you didn't raise the hundred, I want you to give me my money back. He already said, You spend my money. We didn't have a campaign. We didn't know who was going to run a campaign. And so I was asked to head up that campaign. And so I said, Okay, yeah, I'll do that. And this is for Rotary International. Rotary International. Not just the Chattanooga. No, no, no. no. This, this is, is Rotary all International. Now, the first one that campaign was the Chattanooga area was a smaller campaign, part of the nineteen eighty five thing. Just for perspective standpoint, uh, how many clubs worldwide is Rotary International approximately? Right now, about 37,000. So they tapped you and said, we need you to head up this fundraising. I was sitting in uh, California at an international meeting because I'd already been district governor and uh, served on the board of Rotary in 2003 to 2005. And so this was in 2007. They said, we want you to head this campaign up. And so I did, and we were about halfway through getting the $100 million well ahead of schedule. And Bill Gates, the foundation, said, I'll give you another 100 if you'll raise another 100. <laughs> and as I told people, I said, I wasn't going to tell Bill Gates no. No. I asked him one time, I said, why did you choose Rotary to give this money to? You could have given it directly to WHO. You could have given it to UNICEF. You could have given it to the countries. And he said, well, it's real simple. We were in New York. He was going to announce his newsletter and everything. And he said, Rotary has passion. Rotary has determination. And Rotary has boots on the ground. Because the boots on the ground is what took the volunteerism to take and go visit these places at your own money. You travel to India or Nigeria or wherever, and you take and put those two drops into the child's mouth. But we had the people on the ground that could go, had the contacts knew how to work with government, they could go get that done. And in a very Chattanooga way, it was a logistics issue. That's <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. I want you to talk a little bit about why it's so important for individuals in their community to be involved in their community beyond their business interests, just to grow the community. Well, Mike, I think it's real simple to me. If you want to raise a family, you want to raise it in a safe, environmental community. You want your children to be well-educated. You want them to grow up with a spirit that everything is not given to them, that you've got to help earn. What you earn is the right to live in a community by giving back to that community and making it a better place. So to me, it's just real simple. If we don't have strong volunteer leadership and involvement, we're not going to have a strong community. Chattanooga over the years has really been blessed. Hamilton County has been blessed with that. I think there's more need for it right now. We don't have the JCs anymore. Uh, that was a 200-something member club downtown, plus about seven satellite clubs, Lookout Valley, Red Bank, Saudi Daisy, East Ridge. All those had clubs because it was a leadership development thing, as you said a while ago. But it gave us an opportunity to work together and to see what needed to be done. 
the JCs used to be the organization that government and other people called on to do things. So why don't we give back? Why aren't the younger people today getting more involved? Qantas membership is down. Optimus is down. Uh, as you know, working with the Rotary and on the Membership Development Committee, we're struggling every year to keep our organization growing. But now, you know, our goal this year is to be 350 members strong. Qantas is down to about 80. Mm. Optimus is very low. No JCs anymore. Where are young people going to get the opportunity if we don't give it to them? And I think that's a great point because it is community service, but from an individual standpoint, that's where you learn how to be a leader is developing those skills in these type organizations. And I found when I moved here that Chattanooga is very embracing. If you're willing to roll up your sleeves, they welcome you in. With open arms, as we say. (laughs) They will welcome you in. Sometimes too many. That's right. I do have two more questions for you. Um, When you were at Kirkman, did you see your career path in this way? I guess the better question is, what did you see yourself doing when you were in high school? Did you envision? I I envisioned uh, that I would be able to earn a living. College came along because I had the way to do it, and I could work at the cafeteria to serve food, and I get free food. I saw myself being able to have the trade, like my father said. If you can get a trade, you get a job, you can raise a family. So I thought I had accomplished that. Going to college was uh, something that uh, my family wanted more, I guess, than I did because they saw that as another step forward. So that gave me an opportunity. And then working my way through there and then working in the summers and, and everything. So then it became, do I want to work for somebody all my life or do I want to have the opportunity to do what I want to do and to own my own business? Mm-hmm. So that's how that kind of progressed along uh, to do this. And that, that worked out well. And it worked yeah. out extremely well. And George Campbell, uh, Art Jones was a great man. Uh, he took me to Memorial Auditorium when it was being renovated so I could see how the ductwork ran through the joists and stuff. And some of my first projects were over at Airlanger, working in, over there when they were converting wards to rooms and stuff. So I could physically see what was happening. Mm-hmm. And I never will forget when my youngest son's teacher called Judy and said, your husband needs to take his son to show him what his business is. Says, he's talking about wiring of tents and building at the fairground. He's talking about digging ditches. He's talking about all these different buildings in town that says, he really don't know what his daddy does. And Judy said, well, his daddy does all those things. <laughs> all of a sudden, you can drive down through town, and I can see projects I did way back when that are still there and know that change people's life because they're working in a safe environment. Made an imprint. And it was an imprint. All right, John, I do have one last question for you, and I'd like you to think about this a second. What would you tell your 25-year-old self is really important for a happy life? Do what you want to do the best that you can do it. Well, that's great advice. Just thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I think back to myself at 25, there's a lot of thought of what you think you should do based on what others are telling you. Yeah. And you're saying, trust yourself. I've tried to raise my kids that way. Yeah. My oldest son, 
did not want to go to college. He went to Chattanooga State for a year or two, and then he said, that's not for him. He's in the building trades because he saw what we did on building buildings and physically doing work and stuff and, uh, and everything. My second son, when he was a kid, looking down at this room, you got phone outlets and computer outlets over here. Back then, it was just phones. He decided he didn't like where the phone outlet was in our house, in his room. So he took it off the plate, drew where the wires needed to be, moved it. <laughs> he's lost electric, did a great job over there. He went to two years of college, and he said, if I ever want to do anything in this town as an electrician, I got to join the union. He said, now, I know, Dad, that's not your favorite subject, but that's what I want to do. I said, that's what you want to do, that's what you do. And then uh, my daughter is in the property management business. Youngest son wanted to be an architect. So he went to UT, came back, graduated from UTC, started out working here in town, and then said, Dad, this is not for me. I need to be outside. So his degree is in graphic design. He does swimming pools, designs them, they build them, they maintain them. He's expanded from working on swimming pools and designing them to where they actually have a part that, that builds them too. So if you're comfortable and you're happy, then that's what it's about. You got to be happy in what you're doing and you got to look forward to the next day, not, oh gosh, I got to go to work. Yeah, I always called those the Sunday doldrums. About six o'clock on Sunday, you start to go, oh man, tomorrow's yeah. Monday. <laughs> yeah, right. John, you've got a tremendous legacy. You talked about the buildings, but with your family and what your kids are doing and, and everything you've contributed to Chattanooga, we could talk for hours and not even scratch the surface. I want to thank you for taking time to come and talk. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.